Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Daniela Sayoni, a comedian, screenwriter, and script supervisor on projects like My Big Fat Greek Wedding, The Boondock Saints, Suits, and the first season of People of Earth. She's also the creator, producer, and host of Toronto's West End Girls stand-up show. She's also an old friend. We've known each other God, 30 years now since film school, which makes it perfect that she should choose Gross Point Blank, the delightful satirical 1997 action comedy that gave John Cusack the role of his career. Look, it's my show. I get to make those declarations. Cusack played Martin Blank, an elite international assassin assigned to carry out a hit in his Michigan hometown on the weekend of his 10th high school reunion. Set on a collision course with his past and undergoing a bit of an existential crisis, Martin will be forced to reckon with his moral choices, his place in the world, and Debbie Newberry, the girl he left behind. Also, murder. You know how it is. This is someone else's movie. Well, I'm a comedy writer, and I aspire to be a great dialogue writer. I think that's going to be my forte. If People have written about that, about my work, which is great. But Gross Point Blank is, to me, one of the great examples of comedy writing, especially in dialogue. It's it's really smart. It's really funny. It's a high concept as well. Um, it just is a, a classic, you know, and it combines two genres that at the time, I don't think, well, I had certainly never seen the combination of romantic comedy and action before. Yeah. Um, and that I just, that alone is clever. But, you know, I had read early out, just when you asked me to do this, I read early reviews of it, and they weren't great. Like, yeah, it was. Well, when did you first see it? Would you have seen it? Oh, I saw it in the theater. I don't exactly remember who I was with. Uh, probably my best friend, but we loved it. I just remember loving it, and it just had everything I needed at the time. Of course, it speaks directly to me because he's going to his class of '86 reunion. I mean, we're yeah. exactly that age. Of course, the music and and everything. It's it's exact. You know. Yeah. I could not be, you could not find a more appropriate audience member than me. <laughs> Even though it doesn't pass the best shell test, when you look back on it, no, it really does not. But I didn't care because the women had so many, and I didn't know about it at the time I saw it, of course. But the women all had all kinds of interesting things to do in the movie as well. But even though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, right? I mean, it is, in a lot of ways, I've, I've been arguing for Shaun of the Dead as the original mashup film. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I think, and then to do that, I also have to say, but there's also Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, which predates Shaun by <laughs> yeah, five yeah. years. Yeah, Grossman Plank was two years before Galaxy Quest, and it is the, it's an it's a play on 80s romantic comedies because of the presence of John Cusack, obviously, right away. And then also, weirdly, you have the John Woo scale violence that, that kind of pushes into everything. <laughs> Well, as I, w- I watched it again for this, and I was like, oh my God, this is a John Hughes film with rage. It is, yeah. It has all the elements, right? It's got the casting of a John Hughes movie. It's got the soundtrack. It's got the shooting style. It's got, you know, the structure. It's got the, uh, are the boy and girl going to get together? You know, so it's, it's like how, you know, I, I actually had a theory at one point. I thought, I wonder, because I think at that point, John Hughes had quit the business in a, you know, not in rage, but in a, like, he was just tired of Hollywood and he just wanted, and I, I had this, this feeling at the back of my head that he must have been somehow involved because this screenwriter who first pitched the idea, like he's, he was an unknown and he still didn't do anything after. 
And then he, I mean, he did, according to, according to his obituary, which I just found out he died, Timothy Yankowitz, was, mm. he made a living rewriting other people's scripts, which you can make a great living at, of course. Um, but he never, and he had other things optioned, according to his family. But I, I thought, at first I thought, is this a, a fake bio? Is this a fake obit? I did, think it's, <laughs> did, they created the character so Cusack wouldn't have to take credit for it. <laughs> I, I was really surprised. I found out that it had been, this script had been kicking around for a while. Since 1991. The, yeah, yeah, which would make even more sense because John Hughes was active then, but he'd stopped making <laughs> high school movies and he'd started making the weird stuff like Curly Sue and, and <laughs> right. Uncle Buck, you know, films that are fondly remembered by people who were really young when they first saw them. But they have, he stopped with the social commentary, he abandoned all that stuff and just started making dumb movies and then someone else sort of picked up the torch in a weird way with this. And, I really surprisingly found out that Kiefer Sutherland yeah. was going to be Martin Blank, yeah. was attached to it in 93. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I, I mean, yeah, I could see it. I sort of could, like right after Flatliners, that Kiefer Sutherland could do it. <laughs> but what a, what a radically different film it would have been. And also because Cusack and his guys, like Steve Payne, yes. and, and would not have rewritten the script into what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true, right? I mean, yeah, you, you look at their stamp in the future and High Fidelity and Hot Tub Time Machine, which I've never seen Hot Tub Time Machine, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they obviously true. had, you know, continued on a record. But I had, and also the fact that it was set in Gross Point and Detroit, and, you know, and uh, John Hughes being from that area, I just was convinced that somehow he was secretly... <laughs> Pulling the strings. Yeah, but but you know we were also influenced by that era. That it's it's quite possible that it, you know I just I had this I guess it was a secret fantasy that he kept writing. But um, did you read how the the writer Tim Yankowitz died? No. He uh, was asked at the la- he was living in Santa Barbara and he was near the one of the USC campuses and uh, the professor said, "Hey, can you come talk to my class tonight about Gross Point Blank?" And he had a heart attack. He presented the film and had a heart attack right there. And I was like, okay. At the screening. <laughs> At the screening. Oh he, he spoke about it. It was during the Q&A. And he died. Uh, and he was like in his 50s or so. He was not old. Um, so, yeah. So, is that a fake obit? <laughs> that's the kind of thing there's going to be witnesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, uh, exactly. <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah. And, uh, and what a legacy to leave, too. Just like yeah. this really idiosyncratic movie that no one remembers you for because everyone just sees Sean Cusack. Yeah. Like it's the, I, I do think, even in a world that gives us say anything in high fidelity, I do think it's the perfect, I think it's the ultimate of, of Cusack's, Cusack's career. It's, it's just, yeah. it incorporates everything he's always talked about. You know, <laughs> politics, corporate ma- manipulation, uh, subterfuge, uh, meddling, and also has this whole broken heart thing that just, like, at the time... I remember my friends and I were talking about it as though it was like a stealth say anything sequel. Because he could simply have been like, this could be Lloyd Dobler. He would have a different name. Of course he would. Except that when he gets back, everybody calls him Martin. Uh, but the, the continuity of that, like the sense that this and, and, and say anything in high fidelity are this weird trilogy of, of yeah. you know, like John Cusack as the, the broken heartthrob that everybody needs to fix. And I think actually... Gross Point Blank was the first film his company did, right? It was the first so, film yeah. he produced. So he had such a such a deep hand in it. Uh, I mean, this... Oh, there's this, tape heads, though. Oh, he produced tape heads. Yeah. I love that Which movie. nobody remembers. <laughs> I love that movie. It's so great. I'm, I'm doing a quiet campaign with Shout Factory to pick it up and do a special edition on Blu-ray because oh. it is, like, if you... Listeners, if you haven't seen <laughs> tape heads, tape heads is the goddamn best. Yeah. Uh, it makes 
no sense in the present day. Like, it's insane. <laughs> it's a movie in which two guys who were in theaters together, and stage friends, uh, John Cusack and Tim Robbins, get together and make a silly movie that is a, a tribute to, to Motown's soul, essentially. <laughs> and is just the best. I saw that at the Blur Cinema uh, around the time it came out. Oh my God, I loved it so much. That's when I saw it too. uh, It is like nothing else. I think I still have the Laserdisc, actually. I'm still a huge fan. I know he didn't produce it, but I'm still a huge fan of John Cusack in Better Off Dead. I thought Better Off Dead had that quirk. I just like the quirk of it all. (laughs) Yeah, he's had a really interesting... He's all, of course, he's had a really interesting career. That's yeah. a dumb thing to say. But well, no. his early career, like the first movement of his career, is fascinating because he is this really serious theater kid yeah. who did all of this bizarre experimental stuff that doesn't look bizarre and experimental until you see it in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Because right? in the 80s, everything was stylistically, you could do whatever you wanted and you could be silly or you could be serious. And somehow, like right off the bat with the sure thing and, yeah. and better off dead, he established that he was capable of. Like, literally anything yeah. <laughs> in, within a genre or not. He could just do stuff. His intellect... I mean, I am intellectually attracted. I mean, he's an attractive guy, but I am intellectually attracted to him. He is so smart, and that really shines through in Gross Point Blank. Yeah. Um, in my comedy writing uh, class, I always show the clip when he's with Dan Aykroyd in the ordering omelets, ordering breakfast. Right. Fuck. Some of, like, if people haven't seen the movie, my students have a hard time even following what they're saying. They're so super clever. Mm. <laughs> it's just, I'm just laughing my head off all the way through it. You, they never pick the obvious anything, the, never the obvious word, never the obvious way the scene could go. There, there's always a surprise, you know? I mean, they get together in the end, which is the, you have to do in a romantic comedy, and it's very satisfying, obviously. But other than that, there's nothing that you uh, really expect. Yeah, it's... It crackles in a way that mm-hmm. a lot of other movies don't, action movies and comedies don't. And I think part of it, there's two things that really stood out to me on last viewing, which is that everyone in it is a comedian. Yeah. Uh, every single, like Hank Azaria. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as an NSA stooge is still playing a comic role. Like everybody in it is, is kind of pulling the same rope. They're on the same page and they have the same energy, uh, which is something that Soderbergh mentioned when he cast the informant with like everyone in it is a comedian. Paul oh. Tompkins shows up in it as a, but they're playing straight roles. And he said he just wanted to do that to see what happened, to see the the comic energy and then infect a serious movie, which then turns out to be not so serious at all because it's fun. <laughs> but part of it is the fact that he has cast people who are going to give him the wrong line reading or the unpredictable angle, no matter what. Oh, that's there's nothing I love more than working with a full cast of comedians. Like I worked on the Boondock Saints mm. and there were so many comics in that. And it's again like I mean, whatever you think of the Boondock Saints, it is ultimately funny. <laughs> and inten- I guess partly intentionally, yeah. but but yeah, that, that and Willem of course... Willem doesn't get enough credit for that one. Oh, he's so funny. You, he's you so know. funny. He found the top and he kept going. <laughs> uh, uh, but I interrupted you. Oh, no, it's okay. And and People of Earth, which is a comedic show, so they hire all... But I, it's just such a night and day working experience. So I could... You know, and that's the thing. I worked with Dan Aykroyd, but not in a comedic role. I worked on Sci Factor season oh, one. Oh, okay. And um, he's extremely... He's got this crazy intellect like so so smart um and uh, he would just come in and do you know the intros and out i guess it was just the intros to every episode we'd yeah. shoot him on a day or two he'd remember everyone's name he'd leave for months and then come back and do some more um super sharp super smart very 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 serious and very into the paranormal oh yeah little did i know he was going from our show to go work on gross point blank i would have i would have oh, no. begged to, <laughs> to, to follow him and be on set but 
And his his character, the story there, you know, like he was supposed, he wanted to play it with an Eastern European accent, like he was oh kind God. of an ex KGB or I can't Eastern believe that. <laughs> and it wouldn't have, like, it would have killed him. Yeah, he yeah. Was so good as a normal person. Oh yeah, as him, it's it really read like himself. Yeah, you know, like he he had a, him and his brother had a lot of interesting theories about everything, like conspiracy wise. I, I I mean, I only heard he didn't say it directly, but everyone on the crew's like, you know, blah blah blah. Yeah. But, <laughs> But um, you can see that that there was so much of him in that character, so smart, so funny, <laughs> so much rage in a way. But yeah. um, oh, what did I? I want to. He's eminently reasonable. That was the other thing I wanted to. <laughs> like, everybody's a comic, but everybody has a point of view that makes sense. Yeah, and they're yeah. all monsters. Like, well, it, not all of them, but but you know, Mini Driver's okay. But <laughs> everybody else is working this agenda and absolutely blind to the moral implications the whole point of it is you know what happens in a in a john woo movie when someone wakes up and realizes that he's doing bad things oh yeah as i rewatched it um i noticed all the because when i first saw it i wasn't a writer yet i didn't know anything about structure and like planting you know the theme all over the place and there's so many theme statements all the way through yeah you know uh about second chances there's a few lines about second chances it's life is full of second chances and awkward says it like right in the first scene where we meet him uh, when he pulls up and says let's join a union yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Mini Driver says that at one point but I was like oh this is and then I, I had read this review that criticized it for being sloppy and I, I thought this person doesn't understand because the structurally it's perfect he doesn't meet Mini Driver he doesn't see her until 30 minutes in and she doesn't uh, see him kill the guy um, and take off until 30 minutes before the end that right. is like dead on perfect structure <laughs> Right. And uh, what else? Oh, so Ebert loved the movie, but hated the ending. He thought there was too much gun violence. I reread his uh, review. That's sort of the point. Exactly. Right. Like you can't do the two. You have to follow the tropes of the genres, even if you're mixing the genres. And that's what made it so hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) And the invention of the action, the fact that it is clever violence that. Yeah. Even, I mean, there's the elaborate traps, which are just so much fun with the spoofs on Bond and (laughs) and just sort of that sense that the action is meticulously, insanely planned out to a degree that it couldn't possibly work in the real world. But of course, that's how you know we're in an action movie. (laughs) That that self-awareness is just delightful. But there's also the invention that, that Cusack is allowed to show that no one else is. Which is why he's the best. It's, this is the John Wick argument, right? The reason that he shoots everybody in the head is so they won't bother him again later. Um, <laughs> and then gradually throughout the, the two movies, you realize there are just enough people that he's left alive that you understand that, oh, okay, he, someone left him alive once too. And this is why <laughs> he's now A, the best and B, merciless. Did you read that he was a kickboxer? In real life? Cusack. Yes. Yes. Well, the guy, he, yeah. his assassin friend, the Harvey Keitel lookalike, is actually his trainer, right? Like his kickboxer coach. Yeah. and um, But he was kickboxing back in Say Anything, too. Like, yeah. That's a thing that he's always been Oh, yeah. Because that's his at. other passion. And Because as I was re-watching it, I had just shot Triple X last, and I was like, oh my God, these fights, this fight, the one where they take each other down in the, the high school hallway mm. rivals any fight scene in Triple X. And yeah, honestly, it's, like... No, it's great. It's like, there's no body doubles here. These these are these two guys fighting it, and it's very well choreographed. And then and then, I, then I read about his kickboxing. Yeah. So And Cusack is huge, too. Like, he's really tall. Six foot three. Um, that's hot. I thought he was taller. I, I well, that's him, what they claim. I met him in a hallway at the... Dear Departed Sutton Place during oh. Tiff one year, and we did the Swanky Moan stance. 
just came out of an elevator. I was in the hallway. I said, oh, hey, how are you? And we'd never met before. He was there for something at TIFF. I don't even remember what year it was. I'm sure I can find this out. Um, but I just, like I said, all I want to do is tell you how much I love tape. And he just said, swanky mode. So we did a couple of steps. And I'm like, yeah, all right, fine. I'm in your, I'm in your corner forever. Um, and I'm sure he does that every day with people. Maybe he, he did at the time. But it was just, he is, yeah. Martin Blank is pretty much who he is, I think, with the, with the addition of being a, an elite assassin. <laughs> but I don't think he's acting so much as just channeling. I think that's mm-hmm. a, it's a really... And, and he gets no credit for this incredibly naturalistic performance in the middle of this action movie where people are blowing each other's faces off. <laughs> but he is just so good and so immediate in every scene. And oh, the baby scene. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you can have him just be still and stuff comes out. I, I just read something actually today that Pauline Kael called him the man with the question marks in his eyes. Aww. Which is so perfect, right? And I don't know, I was trying to find w- when she said that and I couldn't find, because I was like, is she talking about Gross Point Blank or is she talking about earlier? It must have been earlier. Earlier, right? She retired around the early 90s. Oh, yeah. So, wow. Like, how appropriate that quote is to Gross Point Blank, that is. Yeah. <laughs> he's, like, shooting someone and, oh, my God. It's so, it's so... Oh, and now, I don't know, I read also that, and I didn't know this, but, of course, he and Minnie Driver dated. I don't know if it was before or after the movie. <laughs> uh, one assumes after, just because of how movies work. <laughs> so electric. So electric. But it's weird. Yeah, it's funny. I Generally, when there's chemistry between a... a a pair of actors on screen, there isn't a relationship, right? Like the yes. a handful of exceptions, but for the most part, absolutely, it I doesn't can tell work you out. That. Yeah, for sure, that's what acting is. Um, but the there is something like there's a I don't know how to put it exactly, but there's like an intellectual echo going on there, like yes. between the two yeah. of them in the, in the in the movie. Her her timing is so good and so perfectly hostile. She is not going to let him off the hook for the things that he did. I love when she slaps him in the face, when she's about to, you know, they're about to go in the nurse's station. She goes, wait, something's missing. Slaps him. I just, I I don't know. I related to that somehow, but also, and also Joan Cusack, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone, you know, between Dan Aykroyd and Minnie and Joan and like, these are really, really smart, smart people. And they bring it all to the screen. It's uh, always a surprise every time I watch it to realize that Joan Cusack is practically isolated from, or, or literally yeah. isolated. She only interacts with him. Yeah. And has no other, and Arkin too. Like, Arkin doesn't even, well, he talks to his other patient at one point. Yeah, she's cowering in the background yeah. or something. But, yeah. but it is this amazing kind of compartmentalized story where we follow Martin as he goes from thing to thing to thing and leaves every time, he, with the exception of, of Joan Cusack, he leaves chaos behind him. And, and psychological, if not physical destruction. Well, I mean, he does leave it. She, she has to burn down the whole office, right? But That's he leaves true. her money. Ultimately, right? yeah. <laughs> but he looks out for her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, she, uh, she, uh, the, the film could have passed the best shell test uh, in that one scene. I realized, because they have her talking to a woman when she's talking about the recipe and then yelling at the supplier right. for delivering But it's just that we never cut to the, the woman she's talking to. She identifies her as a woman. That would have, but then, you know, then it would have killed the joke. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you can't have her with somebody else. Oh, there's just so much right about it. And, and again, the tone on something like this is amazing, not just because it is perfect, 
yeah. uh, from start to finish. It, it has this amazing musical drive that carries through. Yeah. And that goes to the score, that goes to Cusack again in the soundtrack because he had to know what he wanted. And, and as a producer, I'm sure he leaned very heavily on the Joe Strummer stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, but also, there wasn't... We were talking about this. There wasn't a movie like this before. There wasn't a tone like this. Pulp Fiction comes close yeah. because it's playful and involved uh, in the lives of its characters and also incredibly violent. But it doesn't have the... Uh, how can I put it? It doesn't have the joy that Gross Point has. Like, the last moments of Pulp Fiction are really, really cool. When you walk out with the Men in, with the men in Black from Brother from Another Planet reference and oh, yeah. you just go out on a high, and that's amazing, and that's Tarantino for you. And then somehow, three years later, Armitage figures out a way to make that high last for the whole hundred minutes. That, yeah, that and I always wonder how much of that is because of how old we are. We are the right age for this. Yes. And I and but Armitage was not. He's like no, my mother's older, age. Yeah. So how did he do it? I mean, he's got to be. He's just got to be some kind of genius. He only did one more film after this, and and yeah. he only did very few films. And it's a mess. Yeah, the big bounce. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, it's a remake. I. It's the the movie that every time I watch Gross Point Blank, I want to look at the big bounce again. And then <laughs> twice now, I have, and I'm like, no, no, it's not good. It was part of the Elmore Leonard wave. The oh post, yeah, the post Soderbergh Leonard wave, and it is not good. Um, but did you know I had I I looked it up because I was like, who is this man? Mm-hmm. Um, Miami Blues on the other. Oh, was it great? You haven't seen it? No. Oh, wow. Yeah, Miami Blues is um, produced by Jonathan Demme, directed by Armitage, oh, based wow. on, a, on a Charles Williford novel. It is, a, like, still Alec Baldwin's greatest role. <laughs> uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is fantastic in it. Fred Ward is amazing. Oh, it's, like, dead perfect. Brightly colored, sun-drenched Florida noir. And it's <laughs> amazing. Again, walking a perfect line between self-aware commentary on the genre and straight up genre story uh really unpleasant violence really funny relationship stuff but um with much more menace you're not (laughs) supposed to like baldwin's character he is like he's a he's a so he's a pure sociopath wow so does he always direct movies about sociopaths he seems good at it uh he definitely works in the crime genre he it, it really is fantastic and it's one of those movies where i think i have managed to uh to will it into existence on Blu-ray <laughs> just because I, I know the guys at Shout Factory and I sent oh. them an email as soon as I heard they'd acquired this catalog package and Tom Chen has never confirmed or denied this but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that my all caps email oh my god you have to put my blues out may have, I have willed that into existence uh, oh. but yeah no anybody listening to this George Armitage is a guy that you should really know more about and yeah he didn't work very much he 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 yeah. worked like regularly every five years he yeah. would put something out there's six years between Miami Blues and Gross Point Blank. Did you know that he came out of the Corman, the Roger yeah. Corman? Okay, I have to tell you, some of the best directors I've worked with in television came out of that whole era. Like, people you've never heard of. Like, mm-hmm. I haven't heard of George. I mean, I know you have, but um, there, there's so many directors that, that I had never heard of, and I thought, okay, who is this guy? I, like, on People of Earth, I was so excited because Greg Daniels was going to be directing. Right. And he's a comic genius, and I was so excited. But before that, I had to do two episodes with some guy named Rodman Flenders. Oh, I know Flenders <laughs> stuff, yeah. And, I mean, Idle Hands, You made right? Idle Hands, exactly. <laughs> and I thought, okay, great. And I told Rodman, I'm like, I have no idea who you are. It was so funny. And then we laughed about it after because he's a fucking great he's a great director yeah. of television and i'm sure of film but he said uh he told me the whole story corman made us great and so i you know i mean i believe it 
You, yeah. You have to, ever, or, you know, Demi as well. Demi worked for Corman yep. and all those guys in the 70s. There's story upon story upon story of people learning how to do just really interesting or entertaining stuff with no resources and yeah. no time. Like James Cameron making something on Battle Beyond the Stars out of out of egg cartons <laughs> that he then spray painted with, with <laughs> silver to make it look like a space hallway. <laughs> Uh, he just did the whole wall with it. It was basically it was a trick he stole from an acoustic sound booth. Oh my god! Uh, oh my or god. or Joe Dante on uh, Piranha, just trying <laughs> to find ways for things to happen, and then finally being told that you have ten minutes and a puppet, <laughs> and it still works somehow because you you have this this glee of being able to do it at all. Oh, that's the thing. You get the sense that everyone that worked with him uh, was already like excited about filmmaking anyway it's like he i don't know he, it was <laughs> a yeah. joy farm or something it was like <laughs> i wonder if that's it like you get to you know you make your pitch and, and you get to say like you know mr corman i'll do anything to work with you and then you find out that that's pretty much how it has to work yeah you'll get no money and you'll, yeah you'll get a credit if you're lucky and, and and he would say okay then you're gonna assistant direct or you're gonna script supervise and then you're gonna direct in two more movies you know that's yeah. how you would get his main crew it's like an apprentice system yeah yeah. Uh, Dante cut trailers with Alan Arkush for two years, I think, and then they made Hollywood Boulevard, which is made about trailers. It's, <laughs> that's how it works. It's it's kind of incredible, and there's I don't think there's anything like it now. I mean, you could kind of have Joe Swanberg's Indie Factory or oh. you know Alex Gibney's Documentary Machines, where he cranks out three films a year, and all of those people working on them will go off and make their own stuff. But yeah, it's a I guess it's a, just a different market entirely, right? Because there's no more exploitation circuit there's no more two we used to have a thing in toronto called power pictures i never worked with power picture but they would they was like a factory they would churn out like 10 like low but low low budget films a year and Mm. everyone were and i think some of those directors went on to become canada's tv directors like really because they just had so many hours but after that after that, that was in the 80s and early 90s after that we toronto never really because we just became a service provider for you know yeah only now are we starting to see a, like a, an identity for Toronto filmmakers, and they're all working with such small crews yeah. and small projects, hundred thousand dollar budgets, that there's just no, yeah, there's no way to to build that up. I guess you just work with the same people over and over again. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Oh that, yeah, no, that, no. That I mean, that's self, good. <laughs> it's self-restricting in a way. Yeah, yeah. There's no like linchpin like Corman was. You know, there's no visionary at the helm saying, you know, and. It would be nice if a body like Telephone could be the visionary that would say, okay, this is, but there's none, none of that, right? They're not allowed to have vision. They're not allowed to have I a vision. I think that's the that's sort of the inherent problem with Telephone is that you have to maintain things so they can be the same next year. Like, so the funding yeah. can stay the same, so the distribution can stay the same. It's all, I don't know that anyone knows that at Telephone, but that's simply the way a bureaucracy forms, right? You just, mm-hmm. you perpetuate what's already going on and then you get trapped in perpetuating and we don't do we do very rare we very rarely do high concept films in canada like i think good cop bond cop was one of the was high concept and it was one of the only high grossing canadian films it's like we don't then we tried with foolproof and that was bad oh i didn't see that oh it's not it's nobody's fault it's just it feels like the super channel version of a hollywood movie Oh, and, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, yeah. Ryan Reynolds' fault. It's not Kristen Booth's fault. It's all, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. But it just, it's got that, it still had that Canadian 
color timing. It had the <laughs> book that says we shot this and posted this in Ontario. Oh, man. And everybody knows what that is. Hey, man, we shoot so many movies in Ontario. Oh, wow, <laughs> and yeah. they look fantastic. But, but that's yeah, yeah. digital grading. Yeah, okay. yeah. The yeah. one lab that processed everything, like, you can always tell in <laughs> the early true. 90s, right? Who the colorist was. Yeah. Oh, that one came out of the DNFB lab. You can always, like, you can spot this, this blue-green tint. That's right. That dominated Canadian cinema. Cronenberg's films didn't look like that, and mm-hmm. the Goyans films didn't look like that because they made the effort. Right, right. Uh, but so many other films. I just, I remember sitting down for something once at the at an NFB screening room. Oh, it was Paint Cans. It was Paul Donovan's films. Right. And oh, yes. this was this hugely anticipated adaptation of, a, of a, a daring novel. And within two minutes, it's like, is he making a commentary that all Canadian movies look the same? Or does this <laughs> just look like every Canadian movie? And I never got an answer. Uh, and I guess it works either way, but it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, no, we're, you're part of the problem. Like, we're, this isn't going to solve the Oh, uh, that that reminded me of um, my friend worked on SCTV, and I, and I made some comment about the makeup, and also in Made in Canada, I had made some. Remember that show Made in Canada? I made yeah, some yeah. comment about how the makeup was so terrible, and my friend said we did that on SCTV, and people would would, but that was the joke. It's like we're making something cheap. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can turn it into an asset if you're yeah, clever yeah. about it. But then, oh, to see that and not realize that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, it would be like watching Gross Point Blank and, and wondering why he gets the girl. Right. right? Oh, but he's killed a whole bunch of people. Does he really deserve to be happy? And that's why the ending is so great. It's because so it might great. not work. Because they... I can't even imagine another ending. That's why. I mean, and, and Ebert wasn't the only one to say he hated the ending. I still like, get it. And this other guy, I mean, he had a blog, but he said that, uh, he said that it looked like it was a post-production mess because they slapped together all these songs. And I was thinking, what? no, 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 no. I can imagine Cusack does a mixtape for every single movie he produces and decides that first. And everything will be built around that. I, I would think. I would think it works the other way. And it, I, I mean, it was perfect. Yeah, and the soundtrack for this film specifically just oh. it's, informs everything. And it's still one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. I love it. Yeah. That, that Matador song showed up in uh, Desperado <laughs> oh, yeah. about two hours later. or No, maybe it wasn't Desperado. It was something else that year year maybe it was desperado el mariachi was 92 no desperado was earlier but it wasn't the only time i'd heard that song before but um it's perfect was it in pulp fiction maybe i don't know but you know that armitage and tarantino were friends Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, well of course tarantino would love it (laughs) miami blues is really the the pre-tarantino tarantino Tarantino movie it's the one that points you towards it i guess just the, the the chatty villain thing but married to a visual sensibility that's really gorgeous yeah. And, uh, you know, that comes along, and then a year later we get uh, Reservoir Dogs, and they just, they married each other in my mind. They feel perfect together. Oh, man. Um, oh, I have to see this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah you do. Uh, it, is, it is magnificent. It's just, it's, and I'm like, am I overselling it? No, I am not. <laughs> I, everyone go out and buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray of Miami Blues, because it's that good. Awesome. Um, yeah, and for years you couldn't even get, like, a, a an anamorphic dvd of it it was only available in this mgm released it in this four by three widescreen Ugh, it was awful uh, no it finally it finally returned two years ago and got the the release oh, that it deserved and i will do anything to get i'm kind of disappointed no one's picked my blues yet uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there but no it's so good and and it is like it is absolutely 
relevant to the discussion of Gross Point Blank because it's the one that it's the movie that shows you where this one came from, okay. or maybe why Cusack needed it, Armitage to direct it because it, it was a left field choice, right? You know, like the ten of us who had loved Miami Blues were like, oh my god, it's a new Armitage movie, <laughs> whatever it is. And I, 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 yeah, this is the other thing. I saw Gross Point Blank at a press screening or a public mm-hmm. preview like the Wednesday before it opened. Oh, okay. Uh, and. I remember it's one of a handful of films that I enjoyed far more the second time because uh-huh. the first time I was on the edge of my seat praying that it didn't fuck up. <laughs> just, the tone is so great and the progression, it's just, it's so perfect that I'm like, they're going to blow the ending or the second act isn't going to work. There's something is going to go wrong. This is too good. And then I came out of it on this incredible high and I loved it and immediately dragged friend because no one had come with me and so I dragged my uh, Mike was one of them I dragged oh, yeah, yeah. over like, I think I saw it four times theatrically it was at the Hollywood it was just down the street from me so okay. I just kept going and kept finding, <laughs> finding reasons to go and also I knew it wasn't going to last so it's like we should go right now let's go come on Friday night Saturday night let's go let's go and I think within three weeks I saw it four times including oh, the preview oh my god and each time it got better because I could enjoy the room like the the energy in the audience was so great, and you each time I watch it, I notice a new layer, like about whatever song is playing, yeah. or about oh, I finally get this reference that I didn't get before. Uh, there was a line that I just got on this last viewing: <laughs> "You're the you're Detroit's biggest disappearing act since White Flight." Like I never yeah. got that yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so I don't know. So so clever. So just the word choice, just the word choices. The snap when Joan Cusack calls. <laughs> A, a, a botched assassination attempt, a snafu. They're right. disappointed. Like, it's a snafu. It's like, as because as a writer, yeah. you can go through 10, 20, 30 different words before you go, that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much of that all over the script. It is my favorite. She does have my favorite line in the entire movie, which is, it, is, is, it was as if everyone had swelled. swelled. Oh, my God. Did you go to your high school reunion? I did not. <laughs> I don't know that I ever, I don't, I'm not even sure I was aware of one. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> they avoided. <laughs> uh, they, they avoided me, probably. Um, no, I ju- no, I didn't. I just went to my thirtieth before you asked me on this podcast, so I wonder <laughs> how much effect that had on my choice. But no, no, it's still a movie that sticks with me. But I had gone to my fifteenth high school reunion five years after that movie was made, mm. and uh, and I kept thinking about that line and just laughing because it was true. It's true. It <laughs> it's true. true. You know, including myself, of course. But <laughs> well, yeah, all of us. But but there's. And you see it a couple of times. It's never really hammered down in the in the movie because they're all still in their twenties and they look pretty good. Uh, but you've got, I mean, oh, I can never remember the character's name. Uh, the 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 drunk husband, the, the just the the beefy ex footballer who shows up and is basically incoherent. Bob, uh, is it the Bob, is it Bob guy? Yes, it is the one who's like writes the poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's Bob. He looks exactly like that. <laughs> Like that character has to look, and that's amazing casting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just the minute you see him, you know his entire story. Like he was the football guy, and now he's just nothing. He's jo- it's John Hughes casting, like I tell you. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> it's perfect, and the uh, yeah, that whole reunion it just made me laugh. Yeah, because you recognize people you know in it, and 
I had read that Timothy based it on real people at his high school. Yeah, they had to change a couple of names apparently at the last <laughs> minute. Uh, if this if this piece of IMDb trivia yeah, is true, yeah. that Piven's name, Piven's character was originally named for the guy that he did know. Yes. Oh, and, and did you know that Piven and Cusack were acting buddies? That he went yeah, to his oh, parents' Yeah, they knew each other school? forever. Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> apparently they broke up. They're, they're no longer friends. Sometime no. in the last 15 years, they, they have had a separation. Oh, man. I remember reading an interview about it once and going, aw. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but and I guess what else, the other thing that's incredible about Piven is that he he does have exactly the same energy that Jeremy Piven still kind of has. Yeah. In a weird way, like he's not he hasn't changed in 20 years. Yeah. And that's both an interesting commentary on the character that he plays and on Jeremy Piven. It's like yeah. Cusack you know, he's kind of been forced because he never really became the leading man that I think he wanted to be. Really? Uh, within within Hollywood, you know, like he's off doing these weird little action movies and these European co-pros and stuff where he can just, he's in Cell with Sam Jackson, this oh. uh, Stephen King adaptation that is just not very good. Um, <laughs> but he's still pursuing the roles he wants to pursue. I don't get the sense, except for some of the action stuff, where he's just, I think he just wants to be in a, he wants to go to Prague for six weeks, and this is how yeah, he does yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's financing an interesting life. <laughs> um, he's not doing the make one for you, make one for them thing either. He's just going where the work is, but in a way that I feel like he's still chasing something, which is mm-hmm. interesting. But but Piven goes and does Entourage and becomes like deliriously typed in this thing and doesn't seem to want to leave it. Huh. And I wonder how much of it is him because I mean I thought he was I I didn't watch a lot of Entourage because I thought he was an asshole. <laughs> it's possible, or maybe he's the best asshole. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's the... good at this. But I can also say, like, it's weird that the the dynamic between the two of them in Gross Point is that he is that he that Martin Blank is happy to see this guy and then almost immediately tired of him. Yeah, <laughs> and I just wonder if that's something that's coming because of their their interests and that's why Piven's perfect in the role because. Cusack knew he could do that with him. Oh, okay. it's weird. It's it's one of those things where it gains so much meaning in retrospect, and I can never figure out if that's because I'm trying to impose meaning on it or because it was always there. This is, <laughs> this is the life of the film critic. It's like, well, this means this, probably. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it can be exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you awake at night sometimes. Some, I bet. Yeah, twice, some yeah. some. <laughs> But then you get a movie where 20, like, it is the 20th anniversary this year of the release of Gross Point Blank, Holy which shit. makes my head melt. Oh, my God. Oh, I know. That's the 15th anniversary Blu-ray. That is amazing. Here we are. <laughs> but, yeah, we're old now. Uh, <laughs> and there have really not been a lot of movies. I can't think of a movie like Gross Point Blank, really. Just the, the mashup stuff that I was talking about. But yeah. those are different in every yeah. way. They're simply, you know, they share a common spark. Right, but it's not... Yeah, there's no way that you could put Gross Point Blank and Shaun of the... Although, well, okay, let's see. Gross Point Blank and Shaun of the Dead are both about arrested adolescence in a weird <laughs> way. It's just that with Martin Blank, he's been an adult for 10 years, and now it's catching up to him that he missed his childhood. <laughs> and Shaun of the Dead is the other thing. It's about somebody resisting maturation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I guess both films are about the men trying to save the women they love from a... A world that wants them dead. I guess. You could, it's, a, it's a stretch. It's a stretch, but it kind of yeah. It's better than some of the other <laughs> ways I've heard people describe the film. Yeah, but what else is that? You're right. What else is like Gross Point Blank? There have been movies that have tried. Have there been action romantic comedies? I mean, I guess like True Lies, which Mr. I haven't Mrs. seen. Smith. Okay, probably there the only you go. one I can think of that yeah. really works. That actually lands the 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 goal. 
which creates another it's a it's a marvelous alternate reality where everyone is you know sleek and perfect and beautiful and the biggest <laughs> joke of the film is that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are pretending to be normal for the first hour like that's it's a totally different metaphor though because it's a marriage movie and I, I haven't seen I, I've worked with Doug Lyman but I've never seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith is it a very, great. <laughs> tonally is it similar like this kind of it has the same joy like it oh, has okay. the same pleasure in in physical action he what was, did you work with him Oh, um, he was my boss on Covert Affairs and Suits. And so he actually oh. came in one day. He, he likes to fly planes. He flew in and said, I'm directing second unit today. <laughs> and he just did this huge boat chase. It's was like, wow. Uh, like this, it was in season one of Covert. But on Suits, um, he just comes and visits. He doesn't really direct any, you know. Mm. But uh, it reminded me of today I read that George Armitage talked about the process of getting that tone. Um, and he said he would always do three versions of each. Yeah. And that's what we do on Suits. We do, well, we did on Suits. I was on it for the first four seasons, but we would do three versions. And he said the one, Armitage said the the, the one that was always just slightly larger than life would always win, usually. Right. <laughs> so it's scripted, improv, and then what's the other? Well, scripted, like, there's also, like, um, in on Suits, it's more like the serious version, the playful version, okay. and the, the, I don't know. Like, there's always, it'll always be three different things, but... Um, he basically shot three movies simultaneously. One that stuck to the script, one that was mildly understated, right? And one that went completely over the top. And the over the top would win. <laughs> okay. But that works for Gross Point Blank because the yeah. reality is already heightened and insane. Yeah. It's just, it's, it is crazy. I'm looking at the cover now in this weird, soft Photoshop picture of John Cusack looking adorably at the camera and Minnie Driver looking adorably at John Cusack. And it's like, that is not this movie. I mean, it, she hates him for the first half. She, yeah. He ruined her teenagehood. He destroyed so much of her. And then he, when he returns, he's there to kill her dad. Yes, yeah, but he doesn't know that. Right, but it is. Again, it has to be, right? Like, there's no question that that's what's going on because this is that kind of movie. The, the, the smart structure of it. <laughs> that when he sees the packet and just finally opens it, which he's been putting off the entire film, we don't even see it. We just know. Dumb <laughs> fucking luck. And like you have, you do have to suspend your disbelief. That's the one thing that you go, okay, like how, yeah, dumb luck. But then at the same time, he does make you believe that he doesn't really want to do this, you know, whatever this, whoever this kill is, he's really there for his reunion. And yeah. then, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. But it also gives him the magnificent excuse to get out of it. Yeah. Because if it's anybody else, he would probably have an easier time following through yeah. even with the existential crisis. But then of course you have the, the classic, uh, well, the now classic, I don't, I'm trying, I was trying to figure it out. There must've been other movies about elite fraternities of assassins where you know, if you aren't the tar, if you give up, you become the target. And it, oh. now we're all just like, well, it's part of John Wick chapter two. It's oh. everywhere. It's part of the language. It's the thing you do when you play spy. It's like, well, if it's, you know, Mr. Bond, it's time. If you haven't fulfilled this, we're going to send 008 after you. Yeah. And this film executes that in such a great, almost, I don't even know, depressingly resigned way. Everybody's really just pissed off and sad <laughs> and tired. It's great. It's, um, the cynicism it's, is yeah, so good. It's that early thing where, you know, why do you always have to say you met the guy? Why do you always have to be the person who, who met the guy? Yeah. <laughs> There's an idiosyncrasy to it that says that this could be happening. Instead of the perfect world of Mr. and Mrs. Smith or, or um, the killer where people walk around with, 
I assume, 9,000 bullet reservoirs on their backs because that way they never have to reload. There's no fantastical aspect of it beyond the fact that this thing is happening. Everybody relates to it in a real way, yeah. <laughs> which makes it funny and real and earthy and, and grounded, I guess is the word I'm looking for, in a way that, oh, also someone is being killed with a microwave. <laughs> Right. And the, I mean, it didn't, oddly, it didn't hit me the first time, but the, uh, the union, like uh, that line about yeah, <laughs> loner, lone gunman, get it? I don't, I didn't get into this business to get into relationships. It's the perfect, like, B story. It's the perfect. <laughs> yeah. And, and it gives Ackroyd's character a motivation that is, like, it's not nefarious. He's open <laughs> he about really it. He really wants to start wants. a union. Yeah. <laughs> And that would lead us to, like, I mean, it would be so great if in an alternate universe, Gross Point Blank gave us the John Wick world of, you know, like, where there's... Have you seen the John Wick films? I haven't. They're... I know people who've worked on them, and they sound amazing. They sound actually, like... They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And they're psychotically detailed. <laughs> the first movie introduces you to this hotel in New York City where all the assassins can go because it's sacred ground. You can you can show up, and your mortal enemy can be there, and you have to have a drink. And, you can <laughs> and then the sequel just says, oh, yeah, it's global. <laughs> It's everywhere. There's this this wonderful moment. And and again, it feels like a gross point blank moment where Wick shows up in Rome to do Yeah, they shot a whole sequence in Rome. Yeah. With Ruby Rose, apparently, because yeah, I worked yeah. with her right after that. Oh, she's she's great. Yeah. Uh, he shows up in Rome and goes to the, the other continental, the other hotel, the, the equivalent in, in Rome. And the and it's um, Franco Nero is running it, because of course he is. <laughs> and he says, I only have one question for you. You're not here for the Pope, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay then. And then. Whatever else is fine, and that's the same. That's the same kind of mentality. It's there. It's the unspoken thing that's in Pulp Fiction too, where mm. bad guys are bad guys, but they also have codes and lives. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about Chris Point Blank is that it finally found a way for the first time, really, because Pulp Fiction is still so stylized. It found a way to make you believe that this thing is real, <laughs> and that this spectacular violence is invading people's lives like the convenience store thing oh that's insane but it's so great <laughs> you can't go home again but i guess you can shop there yeah. that's my other favorite quote <laughs> yeah. and then you destroy it and ultimately his home is destroyed twice oh we've we did an homage <laughs> we stole that scene on suits where um uh he goes to visit his dad's grave and he pours the whiskey. Mm. They, you'll see that in on Suits, Harvey. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that... I mean, we often paid homage. Like, they would often reference 80s and 90s direct with direct quotes or, or plot lines even. But that that was, like, verbatim. Did they do that in any other movie? I'm sure there's a <laughs> bunch of... Subsequently, though, I think... Like, I'm trying to picture it if I'd ever seen it before. Yeah, it's uh, like I hadn't seen it before, but... You know, I the idea of pouring one out isn't new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the framing in the shot... Yeah, Pouring it out over the grave of your... Then it tells the whole story without a single word, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that was the beauty of that. It's funny how fast they dealt with his father and mother. Like, one scene, one scene, boom. Yeah, because he can't... You can't dwell, right? Like, if you you ask too many questions, it falls apart. (laughs) Well... What do you mean you had a certain moral flexibility? <laughs> I want to see... I would love to see the recruitment scene. Yeah. But I don't need to. Yeah, I, right, I, right. Like, the way he relates it to someone while he's trying to take the... Like, he's trying to smooth it down and take the edges off of it and make it sound reasonable <laughs> is infinitely funnier than anything. And sadder, too, because he doesn't really have the facility to connect with his emotions and talk about what that meant. It's... Oh, it's great. It is. It's just... It is a perfect combination of script and character and actor it's one of those things where uh 
I like High Fidelity, but I really, yeah. I regret that he doesn't take a moment and go out and shoot somebody. <laughs> Just in the middle of a scene. Uh, sorry, I have to take this call kind of thing. It could have happened. He doesn't get to kickbox either in High Fidelity, does he? No, I don't think so. Doesn't, does he take Tim Robbins down? I can't remember. I, I just remember oh, he calls right. him a patchouli-wearing motherfucker or something. Yeah, I think... It's been a while since I've seen High Fidelity, but I think Robbins gets the better of him, doesn't he? Like, doesn't he? Oh, oh, God, I don't know. It's been a while. I just remember the patchouli yeah. Well, people, tell us on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Robbins is out there. You're welcome to come on the show and defend yourself. <laughs> just, you know, with words. Um, but... Yeah, it is. Oh, it's. I just love this movie so much. I'm so glad you picked it. It's such a great <laughs> choice. And, you know, we've known each other 30 years. So <laughs> it is. It's insane that uh, that a film like this can be. can resonate in so many different directions or just be enjoyed as a simple action movie. Yeah. Uh, because it still can. And, oh, yeah. Anything that gets it back, it, it gets it back into circulation. I was shocked about the box office. It only, according to IMDb, it tanked. Well, no. Well, I mean, it made twice its money back, but twenty-eight million is not a lot. Not good. No, ninety-seven too. It should have been ninety-seven. Was the year of like dueling? Wasn't it volcano movie year or was that? Well, they said it was High School Contest Reunion year. Like I had forgotten, but Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion came out two weeks later. Um, that fast? <laughs> I knew they were the same later. year. Jesus. But and I and I en- remember enjoying that movie, but I don't remember that movie. It's pretty good. <laughs> I have to say, it is pretty good. It is. Uh, there is another, there's a Blu-ray of it around here somewhere. Um, you have everything. This is an amazing layout. I do. I am, well, this is what happens when OCD combines with, uh, there it is. When OCD with your job. Combines, combines with life opportunities. Yeah. There, also 15th anniversary edition. Oh, that amazing. can't be right. That would have been 2000 and, oh no, 2012. Yeah, sure. We had Blu-ray in 2012. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, and this does pass the Bastel test, of yes, course. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah, it uh, must. <laughs> no, it's, it's Romy and Michelle. I, I knew they were released. Was it two weeks apart? Well, I read that. In I read that head, in someone's one blog. Sun, one was spring and one was fall, but you could be like, that may be right. I mean, that's a crazy choice. I guess, and they were saying it's the year of the run of the high school reunion movies. I don't remember any other high school reunion movies. No, those were the only <laughs> I can think of. And the other thing that's so weird is that Con Air was like a year before that. Oh, really? Like it was right around the same time it followed The Rock. So it would have been 96. It might have been the same year, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, that Blu-ray is up there somewhere, too, but it's too high to reach. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just that moment where you you see Cusack trying to figure out what to do on, in a weird way and having control for those that mm-hmm. little window of time with Con Air and with Gross Point and with high fidelity there was a moment where he really could have done anything and he made the movies he wanted to make and it still bothers me that they weren't bigger hits like yeah should have been, okay conair was but <laughs> that wasn't cusack there it should have been he should have been able he should still be able to write his own ticket i mean yes it just absolutely yeah, yeah one per, you know as i retire out of scripts of vision i'm like will i ever get the chance to work with this guy that's yeah. like that is one person i would have loved maybe you need to write something for him <laughs> oh god because he's a great writer right yeah but he, maybe he can rewrite it <laughs> I don't think he's writing a lot of stuff these days you probably that's the other one that's uh, I don't want to let the episode go without mentioning War Incorporated which was his 
kind of sequel, which is... I just read about that, and I'd good. never heard of it. Yeah. So, like, was, was it the same characters, or...? No. Okay. Uh, no, he's... Other than dressing the same, which is kind <laughs> of his thing anyway. Yeah. Uh, no, but... Because um, I, I just I just read about that this morning, and I was like, what? War Incorporated? Where was I in 2008? That <laughs> I don't remember this. It came out. It is not memorable. Uh, <laughs> no, it's really bad. It's It's a very sour almost reactionary liberal pushback against the Bush administration and the war in Iraq. And while it comes from a real place of, of disappointment and anger, it also is kind of insufferably <laughs> smarmy oh. uh, about its inherent rightness. Um, oh, whereas, and he was, I had read an interview with him where he said gross point blank was his comment on the American dream in the way that Re- the Reagan era, you know, the way yeah. it was in the Reagan era. And you can see that. You can see that, but it's subtle. It's more, I mean, you know, it's not, it's actually not subtle, but it's not overt either. <laughs> it's yeah, well, like, it's there. For, for a character who would have grown up in the Hughes movies. Yeah. Think, like that's how, I think that's what we're saying is that he was extrapolating that, that you go off and you're immediately disillusioned and you end up spending <laughs> 10 years just doing horrible horrible things in the name of progress <laughs> that i totally get yeah uh so it's yes war incorporated he played a character named hauser okay he is effectively martin blank after a bad relationship like oh. i think we're supposed to believe that him and minnie broke up it didn't work out and now he's back to the thing and he's there he was sent to the middle east to kill a minister who's standing in the way of progress or something oh. but there's also this thing with hillary duff as a as a pop star <laughs> And, yeah, and Dan Aykroyd plays the vice president. And, oh, wow. I mean, it's not, obviously not the same character. <laughs> but he's sort of still the, the cynical um, authority figure mentor. Super smart, super smart kind of language thing. kind of thing? Well, less so, because mm-hmm. he's, he's much more brusque, I remember, in the movie. I mean, this is something I haven't seen in ten years. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's not good. And, and Marissa Tomei is in it as the woman who oh. sort of awakens him again to the possibility of doing good. But it's just, it's such a... A grind. It's just no fun at all. And <laughs> it's all about the tone, right? Like, it just yeah. doesn't... It goes so wide. Um, and it's so pissy about its liberalism. So it is intended to be a comedy, but it doesn't It doesn't have joy. It wants to be, yeah. yeah. It, it It is like a weak echo of Gross Point Blank, and maybe that's why Cusack doesn't do stuff he cares about anymore, because this was his thing and it just didn't fly. Huh. But it also arrived at exactly the wrong time, it was oh. the spring, I want to say, of 2008, and Obama was ramping up, and the world was changing, and Bush fatigue had already, like, um, Stone's W was out at the same time, and it was all just, it was too much. There was no, there was no good political satire right then. Okay. Because everything was like, boy, everything's cynical and corporate, and George <laughs> Bush is a dummy, and it's like, yes, that's all true, <laughs> but I knew that when I sat down. <laughs> Uh, and then watching Cusack go through the motions on this was just really, really sad. Oh, who right? directed it? Um, I think Joshua. Guy, I don't. I've never. Let's heard blame of. the director. <laughs> it's easy. It's uh, easy. It's, Poor director. Yeah, Joshua Seftel, who made. Um, he was a producer of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, apparently. <laughs> and that is uh, the the IMDb telling me that he didn't do anything else. <laughs> he has twenty four directorial credits. Really? Yeah. Uh, TV? Oh, a lot of television. Yeah. Short films. Any good television? Nothing I recognize. He did a documentary <laughs> about Annie. It's the hard knock life from script to stage. Huh. 
an insider's look at the Tony-nominated revival of the musical Annie. <laughs> and a bunch of Nova Science Now. So yeah, no, this was his, this was his only feature as far as I can tell. Uh, mm. And it was not good. So it's <laughs> good, I guess. Self-selection. But, uh, but yeah, no, uh, best not to bother with it and uh, to just focus on the original as a, as a singular piece of entertainment. That is, that is truly, like, I'm going to argue for it as Cusack's finest hour. It is oh, so goddamn great. great. Yeah. So the final question on the podcast is always the same as well, which is what of Gross Point Blank have you borrowed or stolen or lifted or incorporated oh, into your creative DNA? That is a great question. You know, I, I um, well, the spirit, I would say the spirit of it. Um, I work really, really hard always to uh, uh, add a surprise to every scene. And, you know, uh, it's funny. It's like no one ever told me to do that, but... But Gross Point Blank has stayed with me in that sense. It's it's like, okay, what is the most, what is the opposite of what we would expect to happen? What What is the, and what is the, the and it, also in the way I, I use words, I aspire to write a script with that kind of language. I mean, I, I believe that um, I'm, I'm going in that direction, but it is obviously, I consider it a, a masterpiece of dialogue writing, of comedic dialogue writing. So uh, I don't believe I'm there yet, <laughs> but... But uh, I, I aspire to have a surprise turn in every scene and to use language that is um, outside of the norm. Very early on in high school, uh, one of my English teachers uh, uh, read a statistic about the number of words in the English language that was used on Three's Company versus um, Cheers okay. and Frasier. And it's because of the intellectual characters in Frasier that it was a difference between 397 and 800 words in the English language. Now, if you think about Gross Point, I know it's surprising, yeah. right? It's surprising because you'd think there's more words than that. But no, the writers, they, they literally analyze the words. So if you look at Gross Point Blank, there's words in there you don't see in almost any other. So you can imagine it's probably over a thousand, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it is. There's so much pleasure taken in the language. The mm-hmm. characters, the actor, the characters are smart and the actors are enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. If you're not having... By the way, I, I as, a, as a crew member, as a lowly crew member will ever since Greek Wedding and which was 1999 I will always choose a movie based on the script now you will see maybe a couple of um, exceptions to that on my resume where you're like well then why did you do triple (laughs) X it was 100% fun by the way but um, uh, yeah if you you have to find the joy and for me the joy starts with the script if you can see the potential um, for joy in the making of it uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's good so what is the most joyful experience you've ever had Oh, uh, as a crew member? Yeah. Um, as a crew member, I would say, well, Greek Wedding, certainly, because we had to shoot that in 30 days. We had 10 actors. Um, I can't remember the number. We had a, an insanely large amount of cast in every scene, and we laughed every day. We never went overtime. Um I know it was very, you know, it was accused of being shot very pedestrian, but that was a TV director. I, I thought he, he did an amazing job. He just... Uh, did something that was a really hard thing to achieve in 30 days and pulled it together. And I would say the other one would be Boondock Saints. Okay. <laughs> when I when I got the job, the director said, uh, "Have you seen Overnight, by the way?" Yes. Okay. He's finest hour. He is. He is not that crazy. Like he is actually a very good. He was actually very good to work with. No, I'm I'm being serious. That's okay. why they could hardly show any footage from set because on set he was actually fine as a director it's afterwards that he potentially snapped if anything but but anyway um troy said to me in the interview what did you think of my script and i said i laughed really hard it's really funny and he said you're hired everyone else told me they were offended by my script 
So I don't know. I, I just got it. I just got it. But then like, that was the first time I got to work with so many comedians, like mm. so many. It was very fun. Yeah. The energy is, I mean, again, it's, it's all about what everybody can do together, right? Like it's yeah. the, the collective energy of the thing, which is why I, I'm sure like the people on Gross Point are just oh. having the best time. I hope so. Anyway, I know that Woody Allen sets are very serious. Like that's what I've worked with some of his crews and they're like, he's really super serious. You're not allowed to laugh. And if you laugh on set, you're not, they're not going to laugh on screen kind of thing. Uh, but I don't believe that's that. Not a thing. I don't believe that. No. I mean, maybe with Bedtime Story, like that famously <laughs> terrible Marlon Brando, David Niven. Oh, <laughs> the, it's the film that was remade as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, okay. And the story goes that there are a handful of takes because like the film Bedtime story has this weird stiffness to it, and it's because they cut every time they had to cut away from people breaking up. People laughed constantly on the set, but you watch it, and it's this dead thing. It's not funny at all. Oh. And then you see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and it's the same script. <laughs> some minor variations, and they change the nature of the, the Glenn Headley character. But the relationship, like, the scene, there are entire scenes that are identical, oh, wow. and they're hysterical. <laughs> Kane and Martin are just having they're incorporating that pleasure they're not trying to stay straight like they're oh yeah they smile they sneer they're doing stuff um and gross point has the same kind of energy to me it's the, the fact that Ackroyd and, and cusack genuinely enjoy their scenes together even though Cusack hates him <laughs> like there's a there's a there's this sort of weary tolerance for for him because they're just it's these are nice people to talk to <laughs> And yeah, they're equally matched in terms of wits and ability. They're just—it's so funny. Yeah, a couple of Chicago guys. Just yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. So okay, so go do that as a screener. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, can't I, could, I could do it. I could do it. No problem. <laughs> I'm also from the class of '86. I could do this. There you go. <laughs> My thanks to Daniela Sayoni, who's currently developing a screenplay, the WBI, with her co-writer Annie Bradley, and prepping for work on another great big movie project. We'll be hearing about. Pretty soon. You can find Daniela on Twitter at HellaciousD, D-E-E, all one word. And you can find Gross Point Blank on DVD and Blu-ray from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play and streaming on Netflix Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at SEMCast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Maybe you could say something awesome about how I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.